The True Tone Lounge podcast features audio-only versions of our video interviews. To view those, please visit truetonelounge.com or our YouTube channel, youtube.com slash truetonefx. Tone Lounge. I'm your host, Zach Childs, and today our guest is Audley Freed. It's great to be here, Zach. Yes. Thanks for having me. Thank you for letting us in your home. It's, a, it's an honor for me. Yeah. Yeah. Well, awesome. Audley has had an amazing career from his time in his own band, Cry of Love, to his work with the Black Crows, getting to play with Jimmy Page in that format, his work with the Dixie Chicks and, and the set last seven years, he's been with Sheryl Crow, mm-hmm. uh, all of the all-star bands he's been involved with, working with Don Was and all the Music Cares concerts that you can you know see him on, on television. Uh, you've had a, an amazing career. We're uh, just so happy to be able to sit down with you and, and tell some of your story. Uh, I'm, like I said, I'm really honored to awesome. be here. I, I, you know, I mean that, yeah. yeah. Well, tell us a little bit about growing up in, in Burgaw, North Carolina. Burgaw, North Carolina is the county seat of Pender County, North okay. Carolina, which is one county away from uh, New Hanover County, which is Cape Fear. It's the mouth of the Cape Fear River, and so the coast is right there. So I'm about 25 miles inland. And uh, at the time when I was living there, about 2,000 people. It's very rural. Uh, and... You know, I didn't realize, you know, when you're growing up, you don't think about it being rural. You know, it's just your, your reality, you know. And we is. had a grocery store yeah. that I worked at and a post office and all that. So uh, it didn't feel like a super small town to me at the time. Although uh, we got our first stoplight when I was 15 years old. <laughs> so that kind of puts things into perspective. The, now the interstate, I-40 goes through there. Uh, and that's been completed probably almost 30 years now. But when I was growing up, there was no interstate. So yeah. we, there was no chain restaurants or any of that. Um, and that's where my mom's folks are from. And, uh, you know, quite honestly, uh, it was a pretty great place to, to grow up, you know. Uh, it's such a cliche now, but, but literally, you know, riding your bike till dark at, in the summertime and playing basketball after dark. In the driveway and and uh, yeah, it was it was you know skateboarding and you know I'm not gonna say there weren't uh, dreams of the bigger world yeah. out there you know on a number of fronts but uh, but I uh, feel very fortunate to have grown up in a place like that you know I look back now and and think you know what what did people do because you know it was it's really agricultural there and and you know as we all know those things are not what they used to be mm-hmm. and uh, they used to grow a lot of tobacco down there so it's like a, a bit of a double whammy uh, and there used to be a, you know I think there was a couple of places maybe there was a textile like a, a, a hosiery mill and maybe a couple of those or something like that but other than that you know it was uh, you know that was really you had to commute into Wilmington 
you know, to, to, to work, I guess. And, mm. and, and that's where you started taking guitar lessons. But how, how did you, why did you, did you want to take guitar lessons? Well, it's, it's weird, you know, as probably as with a lot of people that you speak with, there was just something inside of me from the time that I can remember. And my mom had uh, gotten me a couple toy guitars, you know, but for some reason when I would go to the department store, it was just something that, that there was just a, some kind of attraction, you know, a pool. And you hear that from a lot of guys, you know, it's really weird. Uh, and I had a friend named Andy Wibley, who's still a good buddy of mine. Uh, and I was close with his family and he played guitar and, uh, and I re just remember my dad was in the military and we traveled around and I remember encountering some kids uh, that had played a little bit, you know. Um, and so one day I came home from school and I was out in the driveway playing basketball and my parents were like, we signed you up for guitar to take some guitar lessons at the same place that Andy takes his guitar lessons. And it was at a place called The Music Shop, aptly named, uh, in Wilmington. And yeah, that's, that's where I started. And I think I was about 11 about 11 years old, something like that. Yeah. And so when did Ernie Johnson come into the picture, who was a guitar teacher? Uh, Ernie, well, to give you a little context, I mean, I lived in Pender County. I think there were two or three other people in the county that I knew of that, that played guitar. Um, Ernie lived in the next county over, and he was uh, much more accomplished and much more knowledgeable than any of, of of us, and he had like had a Les Paul Custom and an Ampeg V2 amp, which I wish I had that's right now. It's a serious rig, yeah. Yeah, you know, yeah. and uh, and had a band with his brother, and uh, so th this was. Uh, I think it probably. I think that I, I probably first heard of him through the church because they played in church. Um, and so I was, I had been playing for a while at that point. I took lessons for two or three years and uh, the guy at, you know, I had three or four different teachers because people would come and go at the store. You know, it was a very typical thing and, you know, it was in a broom closet in the back of the, yeah. in the back of the music store and the building is still there. It's been a, it's been a restaurant bar for 35 years now at least, but it's still there on South College Road and. Wilmington, North Carolina, but uh, I had been playing for a few years. The guy, you know, or, or the last teacher that I had basically told my parents, hey, you know, I've, we've gone as far as we can go, you know, so I got some building blocks and then I just began to do the thing that is, you know, these days is really antiquated of pulling the needle back on the record, you know, right. and, uh, and that's, and I taught myself a lot of things there. So uh, uh, my father was sick for uh, the better part of 10 years, maybe over 10, uh, um, and in varying degrees of sickness, and my mom took care of him. And so these, uh, sometimes some other folks would, would, would step in and spend time with me, and, and so Ernie was one of those people who was a very big mentor to me and taught me a lot about, you know, music and turned me on to a lot of music and, and uh, um, and, he, and he took up time with me uh, playing and showing me things. You know, and you have to realize, he was 21 years old, I was 15. When I was in college, when I was 21, the last thing I wanted to spend my time doing was hanging around with a 15-year-old. I had been there and done that, you know, so. 
Uh, it made a big impression on me, you know, musically and, and personally. And we had a lot of fun. I, I, I look forward to him coming around and, and uh, you know, us getting in his green Ford van and going to the music store, whatever it was we were going to do. It was, uh, it was uh, something that was a real high point of those years of my life, yeah. Yeah, he was, he was in, investing in you and... and uh, absolutely, and, absolutely. And te you know. teaching you. What, what were some of the things that you, that you learned from him, either, either playing-wise or... or I maybe... learned seven-sharp nine chord, which I didn't know the name of, and he didn't either. But uh, <laughs> the Hendrix chord, the yeah. James Brown chord, right? That, yeah, I, I totally remember him showing me that. You know, that's yeah. the first thing that pops into my head. But he was a guy that, you know, would be like, hey, you should listen to this Allman Brothers yeah. record. Or, you know, here's this Mountain album you should check out. And he would let me borrow these things. And, and uh, he, you know, had a four-track recorder and a rolling space echo. I mean, it was big doings, as they say. Yeah. You know, and uh, he and his brother had a, had a music shack out by his house. He still lives on that property, I think. And, uh, you know, we would go out there and he would, we would just jam and, and he would like, let me, rec I'll record you, you know, and then I have, could have a cassette to ride around and go, wow, that's us playing, you know. So just a, a lot of things of that nature. And I remember asking him one time, you know, what is this mid-range knob? What is that, you know? <laughs> so, uh, but, but above and beyond all, all that and all the sort of music mentoring, just a great guy, you know, yeah. and his energy was just, you know, really. So then yeah. you, you went off, you went off to college and you graduated with a history degree. Sure did. Yep. And, and, and you were playing like in, in frat bands and things like that. And how do we get to cry of love? Well, when I went to school, the first year of school, I lived at home in the University of North Carolina in Wilmington, which is about 25 miles away. And, uh, then my dad passed, and then I began uh, living in Wilmington and met some people in town that were like in local bands and musicians and whatnot, so hanging around at the music store, yeah. as, you, as you do, you know. Uh, and there was a club there called the Mad Monk that was uh, owned by a guy named uh, Charlie Maltzby. He built it and owned it, and he had just passed away a couple, a few weeks ago. But he uh, did wonderful things for the community there as far as the community of musicians because it gave us a place to go and see these regional sort of touring acts. And when I say touring, it's cover bands, basically, you know. Yeah. And so that place kind of was the portal for me. I didn't realize, Zach, you know, I, don't, I didn't realize these things at the time. I never really had any kind of plan or any kind of vision. It just was an incremental steps and and I thought you know if I could get in one of those those club bands as they call them you know I could get out on the road and and start playing and that sounds really fun because I'll get to travel around and stand up on the stage and play some music and and uh, and somehow through that scene I ended up meeting a lot of the people that came through there and I ended up getting a, getting in one of those groups, you know, and it's a, I think it was probably like the last vestiges of a, a, a type of band that I'm not sure really exists anymore where there was a circuit and region, a regional circuit and 
you would go and play in these towns three nights a week or six nights a week, four sets a night. You know, and I think it probably goes back to like, you know, and you basically are playing the hits of the day or some some segment of the hits of the day, you know. And uh, I think it probably was just part of the continuum going back to the early 60s, 50s, you know, the same thing that the guys that were playing frats back then and playing Wooly Bully and whatnot, you know. Uh, Certainly. Drinking age changed. Uh, you know, some other factors happen. I'm not sure that world really exists anymore. I'm not sure you can go to a college town and, the, you know, the band from Missouri comes through every two months. Right. You know, but that used to be the, the lay of the land where I was from anyway, mm -hmm. you know. So I didn't know anybody. That, that was the only way that I knew that you could play music and, and you know, m try to make a living. But... Uh, because when I was growing up, you know, there was nowhere to play. Nobody in my family played music. No, you know, it was just not not an option, you know. And in in those areas, you know, there were no opportunities to do much of anything. It's probably changed a little bit now. You know, you could you could you can put together a combo and play around the tourist areas down there, do yeah. just fine, have a nice life doing that, you know. But uh, uh, so that was the that was the thing that that got me out of there. So I ended up being in a couple of those groups, and after a couple of years of that, you know, as they say, it wasn't really all that it was cracked up to be in my mind, and I got caught really uh, kind of tired of it and started to think, you know, how am I going to move this forward? This is, uh, I, you know, I'm just going to drive around to these same towns for the rest of my life and play four sets a night and not make any money, yeah. you know, and live with five guys in a hotel room so I um, I thought you know what if I just stop go get a job you know we'll put a band together if I can and uh, and rehearse at night and you know try to learn how to 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 do this for real yeah. and so the bass player in the band that I was in at the time Robert Kearns who plays in the Cheryl group still uh, you know, I went to him and said, hey, you know, what do you think about this idea? And uh, and so that's what we did. And got a rehearsal space and I got a job at a guitar store and taught guitar lessons and played at weddings on the weekend and somehow managed to rehearse at night and, you know, wrote, you know, I, I have no idea how many songs that, that we would play live that all got thrown in the trash. You know, it's just a. Yeah. It was a very heady time. A lot of work, um, extreme focus, and and uh, so we did that for a few years, and and ended up getting a. We ended up getting a record deal. Yeah. You know. Now, on paper, it seemed like it happened pretty pretty fast, but. You know. No, we started that. We had our first rehearsal in the group. Uh, I, I, and and I do believe memory serves me correct here at the end of 1988, beginning okay. of 1989, and we got our deal like in '92. Okay. So that was about three yeah. years, you know. So which you, you put these it, days is not doesn't seem that long, but yeah. But then yeah, there was a lot of hours, man. Yeah. yeah. So you, you you get signed, and then of course you're put you know with a producer. So how much of a, of a shock was it to be, you know, really recording, you know, 
an album on a uh, major label. Well, it wasn't a shock at all because the guy that did our record, John Custer, was a guy that had done our demos. Okay. And he was a friend of ours and yeah. uh, took a real interest in the band and, and uh, was very invested in it also. Yeah. So when we went down to Muscle Shoals in 92 and made that record and... Uh, so it wasn't, we just kind of, man, we had rehearsed so much. Yeah. Play, we didn't gig that much. Um, we didn't do any, like, let's get out and do some regional tourings. We all had jobs and, you know, uh, but we had rehearsed so much that that we just went in and set up and just played our show. Which, which studio in Muscle Shoals? It was the one down by the river that's not there anymore. You know, okay. the, the second location of Muscle Shoals. Sound, okay, right, right. The big, the really big one. Right. Yeah. yeah. And uh, we were there at the same time that Widespread Panic was making, uh, not Space Wrangler, I can't remember, but Johnny Sandlin was producing them in the other room. Yeah. So it was a very heady thing yeah. for us because, you know, I can speak for me personally, I was still had at least one leg in a turnip truck at that point, you know. And we met Jimmy and, and, uh, and we met David and Roger. Yeah. And, and uh, the Swampers. It was yeah. a it was a life changing experience for me as far as not only getting to make the record, but as far as like listening habits, getting exposed to some things, and going, you know what, I really need to go back and check this, spend more time checking these records out. And yeah. Whatnot. So, in, so in listening habits, you're talking about listening to some of the other other records. So, uh, talking about listening, you know, expanding my 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 listening habits to include you know records that had been cut down there that I wasn't aware of, you know, which then opened doors to other, oh, if you like this thing, then you're really going to like this thing, you know. Right. Once and, you start going down the rabbit hole. Yeah, and I'm still, you know, as I'm sure you are, I'm still yeah. down it today, you know. Yeah. So it was it was a wonderful experience, yeah. So then you start having some success with the band. And you're, and yeah, you're, we had a kind of opening, you know, for some major acts. And yeah, we had did real well at radio. We had a couple of songs, at least two, I think, that were number one records on a on what used to be album oriented rock chart. I think now it's probably called Active Rock or something like that. But uh, yeah, we did somehow they ran that up the flagpole, and uh, it was real fun to be driving in a van and you know at midnight leaving a gig somewhere headed to the next one and your song comes on the radio in the middle of Iowa somewhere you know yeah. I'm not going to say that was not a was not a thrill um yeah and we did we went out and we did a couple of tours with Robert Plant interestingly enough we did some shows last year with Cheryl with Robert Plant so mm -hmm. all this time later yeah you know uh his style of music has uh, you know has changed quite a bit yeah yeah uh and yeah he's boy he's got a those guys are it's pretty incredible, this yeah. group that he has right now. Good, good, nice guys, too. It was a great experience. Uh, so, yeah, that. We did some shows with Aerosmith and with uh, ZZ Top and festival. Show. We did a thing with Paul Rogers. A small, that was the first thing. We might have done that before our record came out, I think. Um, and it was a lot. It was a, a whole lot coming yeah. hard and fast, you know. What were some of your best, you know, kind of favorite memories from that time period in the band? Um, well, making that record, probably, yeah. to be honest with you, you know, out of the whole experience. It's funny, you know, I'm sure that you, that people tell you this, but some people say, you know, that the getting there part mm -hmm. is the thing when you look back that seems the, yeah. that seems the, 
the, the, like the best part. You can't tell yeah. young people that. Yeah, you because know. you had that whole natural progression of a of a band that starts out, you know, rehearsing in a garage or a practice room somewhere, yeah. and then you know you're signed, you're cutting a record in Muscle Shoals, you're getting, you know, you're getting to open for these major bands and, mm -hmm. and guitar players that are heroes of yours. Yeah. Um, so, I you know making the record. Yeah, yeah. Well, just what you just said, getting to do that. You know, yeah. play these. You know, playing at Nassau Coliseum with Leonard Skinner and driving and crying, you know what I mean? Yeah. And, and uh, things that you would just never. Yeah. What, what were some yeah. things that you learned during that process that were kind of, you know, like, oh my goodness, you know, moments or things that, that really changed maybe your playing or your attitude toward music? It was head down. Yeah. Drive that van. Okay. Get it done. Yeah. Uh, it didn't really have time. Yeah, for that. Okay, you know it's we'll a lot. Just, it's yeah. a lot of work. Yeah, you know, people don't don't realize. <laughs> yeah, people don't realize when when you're at that point of of touring, mm -hmm. you know, there's there's just a, a whole lot of work because it's not like you have you know you're able to have a bunch of roadies and merch guys and guys driving a, a you know the bus for you. There's no a, there's well, a and lot we of did we did have a two man yeah. crew that drove a box truck and we drove our van around but you know there's a lot of radio morning shows radio right. this and that blah blah yeah. blah so and so you know and so and a lot of driving as with you know most bands they have kind of a life cycle and it you know the uh, you know the band kind of came to an end and then it didn't seem like it was long before you with the black crows no it didn't take too long you know it was uh I put nine years of my life into that group, into into the Cry of Love band. I think nine, maybe more. Certainly more if you go back to the when you first conceptualizing it, you know. Um, yeah. And uh, it just kind of ran its course. So, so we played our last show like in August, I think, if memory serves, uh, of like the the end of summer of '97, and. I got back home and a friend of mine came up and said, hey, you know, these Black Crows guys are trying to get in touch with you. I was like, what do you mean they're trying to get in touch with me? You know, uh, yeah. I guess a couple of other guys that had been in some other groups around had recommended me to uh, fill this spot that they had, lead guitar spot. And uh, they were on the same label that Cry of Love was on. And uh, the A&R guy there, Josh Sarbin, had been very instrumental in our, in, in, uh, you know, he probably believed in our band more than we did. Uh, was still there, so there were a few angles where there were people that knew me, that knew them, uh, that were able to communicate to them, "Hey, this might be a guy you want to, you know, check out or whatnot." So uh, I went down to audition, and I think that was in the fall of '97. Yeah, it was probably barely uh, six weeks. After the last show, uh, after our, our last show, and I had been aware that there was a chair there, you know, that it was that it was open, so to speak, right before before the band was done, and uh, but I, I didn't really see any. I was like, I don't know how I'm gonna make this happen to try to, you know, if this is something that I would like to try to pursue. I've been a really big fan of their band, you know. Uh, so I went down and auditioned, and I got a call. Uh, that was on a Friday. Drove down there and drove back eight hours. With that was my, down in Atlanta? That was in Atlanta. I was in Raleigh and my 
1990 Nissan truck with my amp head and my guitar, you know. <laughs> and uh, it came back. That was on a Friday. I got a call back on a Monday. And then nothing for like eight months. Oh, nothing wow. happened. And I thought, well, you know, I did as good a job as I could do. Yeah. And then what had happened was they were making a record in okay. New York. And they went ahead and made the record. And then when it came time for them to to start thinking about touring that. They needed somebody to fill the position. So about, I guess it came back on the radar like around May, you know, so that's was August till then or October till then or whatever. This is all, I think these, this is a correct timeline. And uh, I got called, hey, here's, learn these songs, like 30 songs, you know, come down and, and play. and. I said, well, now, are you offering me the job, you know, whatnot? Well, everybody hadn't heard you yet, because when I auditioned, you know, Chris, the singer, was not there, and the keyboard player wasn't there. There was a new bass player. And so I went down to Atlanta and, you know, and went in and, and played, and after, you know, the first day, they, they offered me the gig, so that's how all that happened. So basically, that's a long way of me saying I auditioned for the gig. Yeah. Yeah. And then, and then didn't get a response for, for months. And yeah, then finally, yeah. And then finally you had the gig. Yeah. So in Cry of Love, you know, you're, you, were, you were there when the, when the band was born. You helped birth it. You were you know, doing all this hard work. Now you're joining a band that's already established, that's already, you know, you're not, you know, the, you're not part of the leadership of this. Mm -hmm. you're, you know, you're a sideman, and, and all of a sudden you're thrust into a whole other level of, of, of touring. I mean, what... Was that kind of a jarring experience? It was completely overwhelming, you yeah. know, and I didn't know it at the time because you're just living minute to minute, you know, and as they say, doing the best you know how to do, you know, right. at the time. But it was completely overwhelming. Uh, what was overwhelming about it? <clears throat> well, just all those things that you mentioned, you know. First off, how do I have to learn now to be the, the, at the bottom of the totem pole? Right. You know, as far as importance. Yeah. Um, and nothing, the quality of my work doesn't really matter as far as that goes, you know, because yeah. I'm the new guy and there. Uh, and so you're not going to really have a, a, a say so, you know, mm -hmm. and as it should be, you know, they've, they've put heart and soul into this thing for years and years and made something happen. And they don't need a, a an interloper coming in yeah. saying, hey, fellas, if you'll, I think you should do such and such, you know. Um, so that was an adjustment. But I think that I, I, I kind of understood that fairly well because I, I certainly didn't come in and, you know, try to alpha the situation. I was right. kind of, I kind of figured out fairly quickly. Okay, this is my place in this and whatnot. Yeah, you know, the uh, it's, it was a very intense group of guys, you know, and the music reflects that. Yeah. Um, in the best possible way, and yeah. so it was a, you know, it was just a very heady heady experience, you know, and, and, uh, yeah, there was a whole, I remember walking into the rehearsal space the first day and just the square footage, you know, with my band, we literally rehearsed in a tiny, there's pictures of it on inside our record, you know, with a, probably a seven foot ceiling, the floor was slanted, mm -hmm. you know, I don't even know how, there wasn't, it was not nearly as big as the room that we're sitting in right now. You know? Right. So just that's that's just a little, one example, you know, of just walking in and going, "Wow, look at there's a refrigerator in here." Right. You know, 
And, uh, and there's nice catering. And, yeah, yeah, you know, so it was just like a, that's just one minute piece of it, but I think that kind of, you know, would, would be an example that kind of explains if you're, if you're uh, not used to that, then there's a whole lot of other things that you're not going to be used to, you know. Uh, so, so all the way from that, from just the size of the rehearsal space, you know, to the fact that, that there were just, uh, it was just a different reality. Than the than you know on, on on a lot of levels you know the the you know n n nice hotels and uh, you know everything yeah so then eventually Jimmy Page you know gets in touch with with the group and you basically you know kind of back up Jimmy Page and you're doing Led Zeppelin tunes and that was the I mean. I know that y'all recorded some of the Black Crows tunes also, but the only ones that were really released on that uh, live from the Greek album were the were the really the Zeppelin tunes and and kind of some older covers. Mm -hmm. So, my goodness, I mean, what what was it what was it like to get to you know play with with Jimmy Page? I, you know, man, it was it was you know as surreal for somebody coming from where I come from yeah. as it, as it possibly could be. I mean, I had the, literally the Circus Magazine 77 tour, you know, with the yellow sunglasses and the SS hat and the double neck white dragon suit poster, double fold out poster on my wall, you know, and. I mean, Jimmy Page kind of wrote, wrote the book on, you know, on, on the way you presented yourself, you know, and, and you know, how you, you, you had a Les Paul and you had it, you had it low and, and the way he, he dressed and everything else. He was kind of an archetype for yeah, rock and guitar you, players. I learned so much, you know, like uh, just things like, you know, being able to put two and two together. If you hear the solo that Eric Clapton played in Crossroads, that, which was famous when I was, it was before my time, but it was famous when I was a kid as something that you need to check that out. Yeah. And you hear the solo that Jimmy Page plays in Black Dog, you know, your 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 brain when you're putting these things together as a, as a as a kid and sort of learning how to make sentences out of words, I'm like, oh, they both started in that major scale and then went and played the minor scale. Yeah. You know, so Jimmy Page, you know, he's, yeah, he, he's one of the, the architects of, of uh, the whole idea of like rock and roll guitar playing, yeah. you know, and, and uh, so all those things, we could go on and on and yeah. on about how, well, Big a shadow he cast. Right. You know? Well, what were some? What were some kind of like? Oh my goodness! Moments like when, you know, like maybe the way he played something, or maybe you know, like the way he dialed up a sound, or things yeah. like that. Man, I remember specifically one time. I at, I think it was at the Greek. We were playing Lemon Song, and you know it was loud up there. I was using a two fifty watt amps. Mm -hmm. You know and. Jimmy had, I think, 100 watt. Uh, I can't remember for it. Maybe a, like a Softec or something weird like that. Or may, no, he was using maybe a Fender Tone Master, I think. Yeah. Um, and I remember totally. We're playing Lemon Song. We're in the middle of this jam and just hearing that. You know, I, so because sometimes I, it was hard for me to hear him because I had bass on my side and I'm over here and he's on the other side of the drums. Really loud, but every, you know, I just remember specifically at that moment 
you know, it was probably a down dynamic thing in him playing. And, you know, it's just a head whipper. You know, you're just like, there's that sound right there. It's, yeah. it's, it's manifesting itself right now, you know, and it was incredible yeah. to hear that. So was it interesting, you know, kind of having to learn these these parts and play them with Jimmy? Yeah, it was it was it was an incredible experience because you know, I, and I'm sure that you know this too. You know, you think you know how songs go, right? You've sat down and learned them. Then years later, you go back and go, boy, that's I did not have this right at all. Um, so it was it was very valuable as far as that goes, uh, and. Like I said, I didn't want to show up and look like a chump. You know, yeah. the band didn't want to show. Everybody in the band did their homework. Um, so we show up. We're rehearsing. Uh, we're doing the song Ten Years Gone, epic Zeppelin song on uh, physical graffiti. And there's five guitars in one section in the middle of the song uh, where there's where there's a harmony. And now... Ironically enough, it's all there's a there's a bootleg that I it might even be on YouTube, but I know that I had somebody had given me a copy of it of him working that very section out at home on his four whatever reel to reel he has, and it's all very clear. You know, I at the time I could have saved myself four days worth of work trying to pour through and <laughs> hear these things uh, at the time, and so I figured out what I thought was the, the correct parts that we would be playing. And through listening to these bootlegs, you know, I was able to go, you know, before he gets here, I think what he's going to want to play is this. And, you know, if, if you'll play this and I, I can play this and whatnot. Because yeah, that, that's one of the, the issues that you, know, you really have to kind of, you know, pain over is you have to be thinking about when you've got multiple guitar parts, okay, what part is he going to want to play? Right. And, the, and the, you know, the, the, the key... The, the thing that unlocks that is if you can find some live versions. Right. I wish there aren't very many of that. You know? yeah. But I, I think I did. And uh, so when he showed up, we kind of had that together. You know? But then the harmony part came up, and he comes up to me, and is, we're at the Montana recording, I mean, uh, rehearsal space in New York, and he was like, now what is the other part in the harmony on 10 Years Gone? Can you show that to me? And... So I'm like, oh, uh, uh, I, I think this is what it is. So I showed him the, the two parts. He goes, well, let's play that together. And we played it together, and I think that's pretty much what was on the record. And I said, does that sound right, Jimmy? And he goes, well, it sounds good. And he just turned around and walked off. <laughs> and I was like, okay. Yeah. You know. Were there any kind of humorous moments with, with Jimmy just because of kind of who he is and you were, you know, working with him? And just, you know, kind of the, the strangeness of touring with kind of a rock god. Hey, hey man, you know, I don't think I've even processed it still. You know, it's just yeah. such a, it was just so far away from 
from where I came from. Uh, and really, if I would have lived my whole life in New York, it would have been so far away from where I came from. That, yeah. You know, to, to be really honest with you, I don't think that 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 I have still that I can still even now really sort of understand. You know, right. I didn't meet the guy at a party. I mean, we played music together. Yeah. You know? And and uh, yeah, that was it. Was he was great? I'll tell you that. Very respectful and never was dour with with the band. You know, yeah. and and. Uh, Took everything seriously and was on. Yeah, yeah, on. yeah. yeah and, and he was, but he was fun. You yeah. know what I'm saying? It wasn't a, uh, he, he, he didn't lord any, it was not a, a, a fear-based yeah. thing, you know, yeah. the, the, the experience. Except for my own, <laughs> you know, like being terrified that there's Jimmy Page, you know. Eventually the, you know, the, Black Crows were a little bit of a volatile band, and they they kind of called it called it quits again. And then you you moved on to onto some other bands, and you started playing with uh, everyone from Peter Frampton to Joe Perry, and and you know all sorts of you know sessions and such. Well, let's what was what was the next tour that you were on after after the Black Crows? Oh, uh, so Crows that was two thousand one. Um. I don't know. There was, there's been so many things. I, I think I did in 2002 maybe this Blue Floyd thing, which had had a was like a collective that went out and we did Pink Floyd songs, but that was with Johnny Neal, you know Johnny, and yeah. uh, and Matt Apps from Government Mule playing drums, and Barry Oakley Jr. was playing the bass, and and uh, and some other folks. Uh, uh, Jeff Pivar played guitar, and my friend Alvin Youngblood Hart played guitar, and Shane Terrio, he's a good buddy of mine. Uh, we all kind of did. I think that happened in 2002, so that would have been the very next okay. thing. So you decided to move to Nashville partially because of the, you know, that housing was affordable and you were getting kind of a good vibe from it. Yeah, and, and yeah, the people, like I said, you know. Yeah. And, and the fact that there was a lot of, you know, there was a lot of people that play music here. And yeah. this was, you know, years back. I mean, there's a lot more now. But even right. then, there was a lot more than other places that I had been, you know. And I never had any designs on coming here because, quite frankly, I was not, a, I'm not really a, wasn't a fan of like the contemporary popular music that was being made here. You know, right. it just wasn't my bag, man. You know, right. and uh, uh, so I hadn't really considered this as a as a destination. But yeah. but I sure am glad that I that I did it. Yeah, it's great. Yeah. How did you end up playing with Joe Perry? Man, uh, that goes back to uh, us playing a few shows with Aerosmith. Okay. Um, Nick Rybluff playing some shows with Aerosmith. Then we played some with the Crows. We played some shows with Aerosmith uh, in Europe. Festivals and some opening dates, best I can remember. Um, 
And so it kind of came out of that. You know, yeah. He had made a record and needed to put a band together to, uh, to go out and play a little bit and to do some TV promo and, and whatnot. Yeah. And Peter Frampton? Frampton came from, well, the bass player, I, well, I, had this, I was in this band for a minute uh, that we just were like an R&B cover band called Peaceful Knievel, of all things. And uh, <laughs> it was me and Mike Ferris, I don't know if you know Mike, yeah. the singer, uh, and a wonderful, wonderful keyboard player named George Lax that has been in Lenny Kravitz's band for 25 years. And my good friend Andy Hess playing bass that had played with me in the Crows and, uh, and Charlie Drayton on the drums. Heavy. And uh, so Charlie, I got Charlie on the Joe Perry thing to play bass. Mm -hmm. And then Charlie recommended me to uh, one of the guys in the Frampton band that was friends of his and he was saying, hey, we need a guitar player. And, so he recommended me, and I just went and auditioned over at Soundcheck down the street here. You know? Yeah. So that's how that. Happened. And the and the Dixie Chicks, where you were playing with David Grissom. Yeah, it was an incredible experience. The band was was fantastic, and and uh, the keyboard player was Larry Nectel. I don't know if you know who he yeah. is, but uh, Bread and and part of the Wrecking Crew. Yeah, and the yeah. talk about make your eyes crossed. Yeah. You know, the list goes on and on. I mean, you know, mm -hmm. piano on Bridge Over Trouble. What he arranged that. Yeah. You know, play bass on Mr. Tambourine Man. You know, <laughs> uh, he had endless stories. Sweet guy too. Very real guy. You know, he was he was not a jive person at all. And you know, to be around that and to be able to hear those stories and 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 to be around musicians of that caliber. Keith Sewell playing acoustic guitar, I'm unbelievable playing mandolin, you know, just incredible high level operating folks, you know. Um, and the drummer was the first time I ever played with Fred Eltringham, who's in the Cheryl band now, and we've done a lot of playing together through the years. So it was a, it was a good year, you know, to be, a, to, to a, you know, make friends with those guys and, and to, to, to get to listen to David play guitar and to listen to Keith play guitar. Yeah. So you've had a lot of situations where you're, you've been in bands with multiple guitar players. Mm -hmm. So how did you, you know, what are, you know, you've learned how to do that, but how could you tell the rest of us what are, what are ways in which you can kind of play well with others when you have another guitar player in the band or multiple guitar players? Well, you know, I don't have any real hard and fast answers to that. I mean, everything's situationally based, you know, and yeah. you figure it out. But I would say that if there isn't, you know, if there is two things, number one, if you can just listen, if you can, sometimes it's really hard to do that when you're doing a live situation, you know, it's really hard to, to literally physically hear what the other guitar players do. And I mean, you know, in Allman Brothers, they set up next to each other yeah. so they can hear each other. And, right. and so they're able to, to play appropriately, you know. But I would say, you know, if you listen, if, you, you know, if, if it's possible. And the second thing is err on the side of playing less, you know. And also think about the uh, idea of playing to your strengths, not just for you, but for the other person, you know. If they do things that, that are more in their wheelhouse, as they say these days, you know, don't be... You know, it's going to make the music better if they do it. Right. You know. Do you ever think about tone-wise, like how do I differentiate myself tonally yeah. oh, from yeah. the other? Mm -hmm. So what would you do? 
Man, you know, luckily I kind of have a, you know, I, I would say anyway, a little bit of a cleaner sound than a lot of guys do. And so sometimes just by default, I kind of, it kind of just fits in because I don't have as, for most of the gig, I don't really try to have too, a lot of gain happening, okay. you know, but, but there's a lot of things to think about there, you know. And it's situationally based. Once again, you know, if you're playing in a group like the Almond Brothers or whatnot, it might not be that important, you know, because you've got two guys with humbucking guitars and Marshalls. Right. It's all about pickup yeah. selection and, yeah. and and style, really. Yeah. There is know? variation between the two, but really their their tones are, are somewhat similar. Right. Uh, if you're in another situation, it's a good idea to at least think about that, you know. Yeah. I'd say it's song by song basis, you know. Now, how did you get involved with uh, with Cheryl Crow? Man, uh, uh, Peter Stroud, who was her band leader and a longtime guitar player, was a friend of mine. In fact, he was the guy that recommended me to Ken to do the first session that I ever did out here because he had oh. worked on this record also. Um, and uh, we had just remained friends through the years. We did a recording project back in like 2009 or 10 called Big Hat that, uh, Robert and Fred from the Cheryl Band, uh, and, and and a lot of other folks, Robert from Cry of Love, obviously, uh, had been in. Um, we made an EP, and she just needed a. Band. She had done a record and done an R&B tour with Doyle, and a and yeah. different band, and so they were getting ready to get up and running, and she needed a new set of folks, and so Peter said, "I think you should at least listen to these guys." Yeah. So he's responsible for that. Yeah, I owe that to him for sure. Yeah. And you've been with her for you know seven years. Yeah, or it's so. been a minute. Yeah. 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 I yeah. think uh, 2012 maybe we started there. Yeah. 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 It's good. Good gig. You know, it comes from the top down as far as that goes. Good. She's 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 phenomenal. It's always good to hear that. <laughs> yeah, yeah. 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 Isn't not. Yeah. I know yeah. what you mean. Yeah. Yeah. So also, I've noticed you being in a lot of television bands, you know, when they've been, uh, you know, and a lot of the times it's with Don was as kind of the musical mm -hmm. director. So how did you get involved in all these kind of, you know, television shows where you've been part of the, you know, part of the you know, backup band? Man, uh, I can point that to Warren Haynes, of okay. all things. Uh, I've known Warren for a really long time and uh, I've done quite a bit of work with the, with Government Mule and, and, you know, used to be able to go out, sit in with the almonds and things, you know, uh, because of him. He's a North Carolina guy, too. Yeah. In 2010, I think it was, um, they were doing a, a, a Greg Allman thing. Uh, obviously, Greg was still with us at that point at the Fox in Atlanta. And I remember I was at the YMCA over on Gallatin Road hearing and uh, got back in my car and phone lit up and it was like, hey, are you interested? It was somebody at some office I had never met who any of these people were. Are you interested in being in this house band for this Greg Allman tribute thing, you know? And I was like, I absolutely am yes, <laughs> interested yes, in that. absolutely. Uh, and so at the rehearsals, uh, someone, it might be the guy that promotes these, a lot of these shows, said, yeah, Warren recommended you. To do, to do this thing. Well, now Don had produced Black Crow's record called Lions. Okay. That I only played on a couple of songs on that, so I was only in the studio for a couple of days, but he was there. Yeah. And I guess he remembered me from that. If you would have asked me if he'd remembered who I was, I would have been like, he has no idea. I mean, the guy plays a lot of music, does a lot of records. Yes, he does. 
but I guess so maybe Warren told him and Don was like, oh, I know that guy. Yeah, let's give, give that a shot. And so uh, I did that one and, and it's, you know, yeah. get hired to do these things, you know. So yeah. it's, but that, those have been really wonderful and have led to a lot of not just great musical moments, but some real special moments for me because I've gotten to, to participate in some things that to honor some folks that are really like meaningful. It's not just a gig. You know what I mean? Even, yeah. the, even the Greg thing, you know, I mean, I grew up with that. It loomed really large. You know, I got the Brothers and Sisters record when I was in sixth grade for Christmas. And the people you that know. came out for that, you know, you had Taj Mahal and Jackson incredible, Brown and incredible. Vince Gill and on and on and on. About, yeah. yeah. And, you know. and then some of these other, you know, you know, kind of where you've been part of these house bands. So who, who are some of the acts that you got to play with that were really special moments for you? Well, the Dylan Music Hairs thing was pretty heady. You know, that's the night he gave that crazy speech. Right, the, you know? that's been transcribed and yeah, you can find online. I, I was yeah. standing out watching him say that, you know, and the Ringo stars out in the audience and, you know, yeah. uh, among God knows who else. But uh, that was an incredible one. Springsteen was on that. Tom Jones mm -hmm. was on that, you know. Um, I don't know. I'd have to really sit here and think, but the ones that immediately spring to mind, we did a Skinnered one at the Fox in Atlanta. Um, and that music really loomed large for me when I was a kid in rural North Carolina in 1977, believe me, yeah, if you was, played guitar. Yeah. you know. And uh, I had a copy of their live record, uh, One More From The Road, that was recorded at the Fox Theater in Atlanta. And you would see the T-shirts that say Live at the Fox, that, you know, that Ronnie Van Sant's wearing. So, that was a big thing for me when I was in high school, that record. I learned to play a lot of guitar off that album. You know, So mm -hmm. here we are, 30 years later, however many, at the Fox, and I got to stand on stage and, and, and tell Gary Rossington, hey, I used to cut grass to make my money to go to Best Products, and in the summer of 77 or whenever it was, I went down and bought that record, and I had a copy of it, and he signed it, and my, yeah. my original copy, and he signed it for me. You know, yeah. These things... Are personal, you know, to other people, they're like, yeah, whatever, you know. Oh, those are special moments. But it was a, I was standing on the stage in that building, yeah, you know, and I'd stared at that album cover for hundreds of hours, you know, yeah. and learning, 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 and uh, that was an incredible thing to be able to do that. And I think that he heard me. I think he actually heard me and was like, oh yeah, yeah. this is guys, you know, yeah, for real here, and to, you know. Then they're standing on the side of the stage while you're playing their parts. Mm -hmm. You know, it's a, it's a very you know momentous opportunity. Well, and you know, you think about it, it's so humbling. You know, and I mean that. I really do mean that. You know, uh, a love of music, and you know, this guitar brought me to that place. Yeah. You know, it's a powerful, very, very powerful thing. Yeah. I guess the most recent one has been the the Elvis one. Was. Yeah, we actually did one. That was on. We did one, uh, uh, a Willie Nelson thing. Okay. But that actually happened before the Elvis thing was on TV. We taped the Elvis thing last okay. year. Okay. Yeah, yeah. That was that was awesome. Yeah. Uh, taped it over a couple of days out in California. Yeah, that was uh, yeah. that was really something special yeah. to say the least. You know. Thinking about all the people that have kind of poured into you, like Ernie, and getting all these playing situations. What are some important bits of wisdom that you wish that maybe you had been told or ones that you, you would just want to pass on to others? Um, you know, 
there's a lot of miles uh, and, and, and there's been a lot of years and a lot of experience. And, uh, so there's probably, there's a lot of things. Um, but also you got to be careful to not like be preachy. Uh, I can't say that there's anything that I wish somebody would have told me because I just had to figure it out for myself, you know, and, yeah. and, uh, I never have really had too much of a plan. I mean, I, my plan was if I can get in one of these cover bands, I'll do that. I didn't really think that I was going to ever be good enough yeah. to do, you know, on my instrument to do that. That kind of happened. Planned to quit doing that and let's just see if we can put a band together and figure out how to make some of our own songs and see if we can get a record deal, you know. And so I kind of planned that. After that, it just kind of, you know, things, things have just kind of happened. Yeah. Uh, all that to say, uh, I would say this. If you have a passion for something, and in our case, we're talking about playing the guitar. If you have a, you know, if you have an idea and you're, and you're beginning your journey, and I guess you're speaking about guys that are that are maybe on the on ramp. Yeah. You know, um, usually at that time in your life, maybe you have a little less responsibility, and things are maybe not as complicated. You know, uh, and if that's the case, I'd say pursue the thing that you really think that you want to do. So you're 25, 30 years later, you don't look back and say, "Man, I wish I would have done that." Yeah. Because if you if you are at a time now now don't get me wrong if you are at a time in your life where you have the freedom to do that I, I would say maybe that's the most important thing because there's always time later to maybe take a step back and go you know this is not working maybe I should think about some other options but I, you got to give it a shot yeah you know it's not always going to be easy yeah. you know because you have to put in the hard work. Just like you did when you know when you were going to play with with Paige, you didn't just you know show up. You did a, a yeah. Well, that's a whole other set yeah. of advice that, or but, whatever. Yeah. But, but that's yeah. but that's always you know, but that's always part of it. The, absolutely. You know, always always putting in the hard work. Yeah. There's no substitute you know. for that. There's no substitute. And also, then you can look back thirty years later and go, Hey, I didn't blow it. I worked hard. I did right. what I needed to do. I over prepared. Right. I showed up five minutes ahead of time. Yes. You know that that kind of stuff. But I would say, outside of all that sort of those, those kinds of uh, co career components or whatnot, you know, if you really think you want to do something and you're in a position to be able to do it, give it a shot. Well, oddly, let's talk a little gear. So first off, tell me about this original Sin guitar that you uh, Well, have. you know Jeff. You've, yeah. you've spoken to Jeff. Everybody knows Jeff. Uh, man, I, I don't know. Um, he built the guitar uh, and... Yeah, it's just one of his creations, you know. And I can't, to be, be honest with you, I think this is a Don Mayer pickup. Okay. And this might be a Lawler. I can't really remember. Um, it just agrees with me. I had a, 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 another one of his guitars that was the exact same setup, you know, uh, uh, with a, a rosewood board and same color and everything. And it just didn't resonate with me as much. And he built another one. He was like, man, I think you might want to check this other one out, you yeah. know. And, uh, and, uh, and I just love it. It plays really great, and, and it's a good sound. It's very versatile um, as far as being a good rock and roll guitar, but it's a good R&B guitar also. You know, I got another one. I got a 54 reissue of Fender. I think it's a 54, the 
the Black Guard ones? Is that what those? Is well, it it's a be. 50s, yeah. American 50s reissue that I've had for like 20 years. I got it from a Fender guy in, in 99 at, at the, when we were playing with Jimmy Page at the Roseland for 450 bucks. But I was able to go through all the ones he had there, and it was the best sounding one. I bet it sounded better any of the custom shop ones. And it's a really like rock and roll sounding guitar. It's, it does sound like the Rolling Stones, you know. Yeah. Uh, and it's out on, out with the Cheryl gear right now, but those those uh, th th those are my two main Telecasters, which I kind of consider a a really good do all guitar in a lot of ways, you know. Yeah. And while while you've got this guitar, you've got a you've got a little pedal board over mm -hmm. here. It's got a, a, a smattering of uh, of effects on there, and mm -hmm. then uh, I'll do a blatant plug. He's got a one spot power, powering <laughs> powering Don't them up. Don't leave home without it. Yeah. <laughs> yes. And uh, so, uh, of the effects on here, uh, tell us a little bit about the ones that you use the most on there. Uh, man, you know, it really depends on the gig. I don't want to evade the situation, but... Uh, so you swap stuff out? I swap stuff out on it all the time. Okay. And like, uh, you know, uh, on some of these tribute gigs, you know, house band things, depending on the what the body work that we're trying to interpret is, you know, yeah. like... Uh, uh, Sometimes, you know, uh, you need different things than other things. But the basic food groups for me, you know, are a couple of levels of of boost or distortion and some tremolo and a, you know, sometimes I use a delay. I don't really use it that much. Uh, and then sometimes some kind of swirly box, you yeah. know what I mean, a, a phaser or a univibe or a Leslie sound. Right. Uh, if I... Um, if the gig doesn't require any more than that, that's I'm pretty good to go. Maybe a fuzz box of some kind, you know. Sometimes. Yeah. No, but on the Cheryl gig, like, what kind of effects do you? Uh, do you I have don't for really that? use too much, man. You know, I've got a couple of a uh, couple of overdrives. I've got a, a thing called a reveal that my tech Andy uh, uh, they have a company called Grindstone, I think it's called, and uh, it's a really transparent, like boost, clean boost, one knob, clean boost thing. And I got the El Capistan Strymon that I used for some slapback or a long delay, but that's really only a couple of songs a night. And uh, a little tremolo, and uh, I got an Archer that I really like for solos. And then I swap out the, the Archer is like the normal gain solo thing, but if I really want to get a, like a super, uh, a, a little more sustain and whatnot, uh, I, I swap that. I hadn't, I, I'm still figuring that out. Yeah. And, uh, what kind of amp do you use on the Cheryl gig? Right now, man, I'm using Blackface Deluxe uh, uh, for Fender sound, if that makes any sense, yeah. which I use for two or three songs a night. And usually the other amp will always is a Vox-flavored okay. thing. And right now I'm using a Bad Cat 30. Mm -hmm. um, I have used uh, the Extra Chimey, the uh, uh, third power. Woolly coats, extra chiming, which sounds really, really great too. And that that's kind of a Princeton sized amp, but it's Princeton got an EL84. But it's an EL84 thing. It's really grab and go friendly. It sounds really, really good. Uh, and I've used matchless lightning. Um, uh, but I just got this bad cat and I'm just giving it a spin yeah. and it sounds real good, yeah. you know. Any uh, speaker uh, favorites? What kind of speakers do you like to use? Well, you know, yet again, it depends on the on the amp. Uh, I, you know, of the of the Celestians, I really like the uh, G12H more than the Vintage 30s or the 25s. Um, 
I don't know, they just agree with my ear more. Yeah. But I've come to really like the gold for, for that flavor, for the Alnico flavor. And of course the blues sound amazing, you know, in a, in a Vox style amp, but you just gotta be so careful with them, not blowing them up, you know. Yeah. I'm not really an aficionado of all that stuff so okay. much, you know, but I, I, I think I sorta of know yeah. what I like, but I kinda, you know, shoot now and ask questions later just yeah. You know, as far as that goes. You've got a, a Lazy J mm -hmm. amp. Yeah, this guy Jesse Hoff over in England makes these, and I got turned on to him by a guitar player in London named Luke Potashnik. Uh, uh, that, and uh, uh, Jesse is from, well, he lived for a while in North Myrtle Beach, South Carolina, and this amp actually was in Myrtle Beach. A friend of his had it, mm -hmm. and, uh, and I, I bought this from him, and it's like a a Tweed Deluxe of some description, you know, I, he's monkeyed with it somehow, I don't really know how, but that's got an Alnico Blue in it, and this amp, I will say, sounds the best through that speaker. Okay. I use it in the studio sometimes, you know, as a head mm -hmm. through other speakers, and it sounds really, really good, but it really speaks through that thing, so uh, it's, yeah, it's a, a fun, a fun amp. I mean, my, my go-to, I have a a Germino, 50 watt Germino amp, that I, that's a great rock and roll. It's like a JTM 45, you know. Mm -hmm. uh, that's a good do-all. I would say that that my, the feel that I like to, uh, that I like the most probably comes from a British amps more than, than from a, I'm not really a, 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 a full, fully devoted to like blackface fenders and things. Uh, but this this JTM forty five thing sounds really good, and I'm just a big fan of the AC thirty style circuit. Um, and luckily, you know, in the in the Cheryl band, that really works well. I think you know yeah. to, with with her songs. You know. Do you have to? Uh, you know, certain bands have different you know kind of volume ceilings and such. Mm -hmm. Do y'all have to kind of keep the volume down lower with yeah. her? Or is it they're pretty much all the ceilings are pretty low these days. You know, like yeah. uh, we were talking about. And, you know, and it's a, it's a product of a lot of different things. Uh, but, yeah, we keep the volume down pretty much. I mean, I've got that 30. It's, you know, I got it up just enough to get a little hair on it and to get a little low end yeah. out of it. But uh, it's pretty low, you know, yeah. and, and, and controllable. You know, the thing about volume on stage, I've got a lot of friends, you know, that grew up playing loud. Like, you know, playing 150 watt, you know, 50 watt and 100 watt marshals in clubs. You know, that's just used to be the thing that, that people yeah. used to do. Some people are really good at doing that. So you can go to the club and watch them and you think that this is no louder than any other show because they play so dynamically and they mix themselves and, and the tones are not harsh or whatnot. But if you don't know what you're doing with something like that, it can be a, it can be a pretty gnarly, you know. Yeah, take your head off. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Let us hear a little bit of this guitar with the with the Lazy J. Wow, and that's the neck pickup. That's the neck pickup, yeah. yeah. yeah.
nice going from the uh, you know pedal steelish bend, you know, bending the the wound D string, and then kind of some Keith Richards-y kind of, you know. Yeah, that yeah. Uh, you know these guitars do a lot of things, they, man. They do. You know, they do yeah. a lot of things. So tell us about this Sin guitar. Uh, man, this one was a gift from my wife, and she and Jeff uh, sneakily put this together for me for a birthday a few years back, and she asked Jeff to build a guitar, which they subsequently sent to Gene Parsons and had a Parsons White Bender yeah. put in it. And uh, so it's uh, really special to me on a couple of levels. Jeff just put some new frets in it and whatnot, but I've played this guitar a lot and recorded with it a lot, and uh, and it's fun to goof around with that Bender, man. I really, it's, yeah. it's a really, a, a, yeah. a, Really fun, and it's a really good sounding guitar otherwise, too, you know, this maple fingerboard, it's a little more rock and roll. Yeah, so, the, you know. the the clear plate on the back is neat to be able to see the, uh, the yeah. mechanism in there. He everything. signed it, too, you know, you can call Gene Parsons on the phone, it's so weird, you know. <laughs> I never talked to him, my wife, but they had it done, and it's the long throw, you know, so. Okay, so basically it takes longer to get the, the whole step bent. Right, so I mean, it's, you know, uh, for lack of a better way to put it, it's just sort of more redneck sounding to me, you know what I mean, getting yeah. that long yeah. twang thing yeah. happening. More know? like Clarence. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, I got this guitar few years back and uh, it's just a late 64 or 65 you could probably tell me from the serial I don't know from the serial number but uh, it's I, the reason I know that is because it doesn't have this super skinny nut right which kind of was mid 65 or something that's like what that. I've heard yeah, yeah. you know uh, and it's all stock except for this uh, tail piece which allows you to actually to be semi in, in tune, tune. yes yeah, semi in tune and you know uh, as I was saying earlier about the Vox style amp my favorite Pickup probably is a P90. I really like to lean on those because they're so versatile. You know, yet again, yeah. you know, you can roll that volume back just a little bit and spank these power chords, you know, or not power chords, but cowboy chords, you know, and, and yeah. it's just real clear and articulate. Townsendy, you know, um, sort of like the, I don't know, it's like those big star records or something. You know, I think that Chris Bell used a 330 on those records. Uh, and but yet again, you know, you can go neck pickup and and get a little go box going and 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 get into a little bit of British blues territory or Dwayne Almond territory or whatnot, you know, with the right with the with the right amp or pedal, um, or you can pick back here and get it almost twangy telly type sound. So uh, this guitar, the neck, I, I don't know. I went in Guitar Center and uh, and was going to buy an amp. In fact, bought an amp. And tried it out with this guitar, and uh, took the amp back, and bought the guitar. And uh, Jeff Sim put some frets in it for me, a little bigger fret, like a little bit bigger fret, you know. And uh, the neck shape, I don't know, it's just uh, something that I kind of fell in love with. There's been so many times in the past, I'm sure that everybody experiences this, where I've walked in, played something, and thought, man, that guitar is awesome. I really can't afford it, and just walked away from it. And and this time I didn't. I actually bought the guitar. You yeah. Know, so. The tuners are new. I said it's. I don't know. It's you know. Yeah. Let's plug that in. Let us hear it a little bit.
stop you for a minute. There's, it's not common for uh, rock players to use their fingers too, along with the pick. Where did you learn that technique from? Man, you know where that came from? I, yet again, no, subconsciously, I used to teach guitar lessons. Mm -hmm. And from sitting in a room, like when a student wouldn't show up, or just waiting for a student or whatnot, I, it just happened. I yeah. had no designs on that or yeah. uh, to the point now to where it's really hard for me to play a lot of things that I used to play just with a pick. Right. Yeah, you know. And, you, ha you know, I have to be careful because you don't want everything to sound like your chicken picking stuff, you know. Right. So maybe you angle your hand back and maybe a little more flesh or a little different sound or this or that. But, uh, yeah. But I've been doing that a very a long time. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, it's it's great. It, yeah, you do have to be careful about getting into the chicken picking. You don't thing, want to put everything to pop, but, you know, yeah. you kind of learn over the years, of, you know. Yeah. Contextually speaking, you know. Yeah, how to use that in a non-country yeah, you know, sort of, fashion. Yeah, yeah. yeah. I'll try to. Anyway. Yeah. What are some playing concepts that uh, have really kind of opened your eyes? I, I guess it really depends on, yet, yet again, you know, what kind of what kind of music that... that you're working with, you know, I like to, I, you know, I, I really just love playing down Malcolm Young, just open chords, you know, same yeah. things you learn when you first learn how to play guitar, but yeah. with the, it's all, you know, contingent upon a lot of this, how hard you're hitting things and voicings and whatnot. Um, so I really like to hear that, you know, open strings, uh, uh, sound, do you use capo, you know, when you on an electric when you have to yeah, yeah. Oh, play yeah, some yeah, yeah. odd keys or something? Yeah, like yeah, 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 yeah. That's that's de-rigger, you know what I mean? Yeah. Especially with the number charts and, 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 and whatnot. So, yeah, yeah, capo. I don't know, Zach, I have a hard time. I just kind of, it just kind of happened. Yeah. Yeah, I don't really intellectualize it too much. But uh, I like syncopa syncopated lead playing, you know, like if that makes any sense. Like I, I think I discovered a few years back, I was watching somebody sent me a, video of Richie Blackmore playing on this beat club at this rehearsal take for a Deep Purple song. And I was watching him and I was like, oh, I must have got more from that guy than I realized I did because he played a really funky and really clean, mm -hmm. clean 200 watt Marshall Strat, like unforgiving, dry, you know, mm -hmm. and he plays some really funky stuff. I've always really liked that kind of playing, you know. Yeah. Not too far removed even from like what Steve Gaines played, you know. Yeah. I mean, people wouldn't put those things together, but yeah. I think they probably were both listening to James Burton, you know, whoever, you know. Yeah, I, I think, yeah, there is a James Burton connection with, with he and, and Paige, and mm -hmm. and uh, and there was a, a British, you know, a country player named Ray Flack. Yeah, yeah. I've that was him. very influenced yeah. by Blackmore. Yeah, yeah. so uh, yeah. I'm not going to say he's the blueprint but yeah. I, I do like that kind of playing i used to go see a guy named moses mo that played this band called mother's finest from atlanta years ago he had a club band at that club the mad monk in wilmington and uh, and he had a very fluid sort of funky style in that you know it's not fancy it's, yeah. you know it's a lot of it is 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 just pentatonic box with the flat five and maybe a six two and six you know all that thrown in but uh there's just a swag. It has a little bit of a swagger thing about it, you know, that I've always always thought was cool. Yeah. Well, oddly, I really appreciate you letting us uh, come to your home and taking the time to let, uh, to tell your story. And uh, it was a it was a real pr pleasure and an honor. Yeah, uh, uh, the pleasure and honor are all mine. Yes. Seriously, yeah, yeah. Thank you, oddly. I appreciate it. Thanks, man.
This has been an audio presentation by TrueTone, truetone.com.